What's up, friends? Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number nine, Jim West. Now, Jim has been Weird Al's lead guitarist on so many albums, so many tours from the very early days. We're going to talk about how he got that gig, how he gets into scoring later on, his process when it comes to creating. It's so cool. So let's not wait anymore. Episode number nine, Jim West. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Mahalo nui loa, my friend. Thank you. Oh, I am. I have to admit, I am so excited because there's so many questions I want to ask you and I want to hear all your stories because for me, uh, I feel like I know you because I've seen you in every Weird Al music video. I know what you look like. I know all <laughs> those 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 moments where I'm just like, I you know, dare to be stupid uh, or your solo and eat it where you're just ripping, ripping and then you explode. It's just like all those <laughs> things I just know. But I want to know more too. Like, you know, for you, it feels like, was the guitar just always attached to you growing up? Was it just like, just part of who you are? Yes, exactly. You know, I started playing when I was 12. My older brother uh, played a little folk music and had a guitar lying around. And I just picked it up one day and I think it had like two strings on it. And he saw that I was interested. And so he went out and got a, a book and a you know, uh, some accessories, new strings and all that stuff. And as soon as that, as soon as I had that, I just, that was it. I just got locked into the guitar and uh, stayed in my room and practiced and played and listened to records. And it's kind of been that way ever since. That So was the majority of your, your learning of guitar kind of like through that, you know, that book self-learning and then just like records and then eventually kind of like bands? Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm self-taught. Um, I have a I have a pretty good ear, so I was able to, you know, pick things um, up off of records. The first stuff I learned were were kind of the things my older brother was playing. It's kind of folk music and finger picking, acoustic stuff. And then when I got to be, uh, you know, fourteen or fifteen, I started getting to electric guitar. And by the time I was sixteen, I had a Les Paul and a Marshall amp, and I was playing my first gigs. <laughs> That just blows my mind. So you're all self-taught because I, yeah. you, you're playing your technique, everything. You know, I think of, it was funny today I posted on Instagram, but I was just, you know, as I was working out this morning, I was listening to like, you know, songs I remember, you know, trying to pick through. And I remember one of your uh, airline, Amy, if I'm going to go for a deep cut into uh -huh. an old Weird Al song, I, the solos in that, that seems like so technically proficient, crazy, but to hear you be like, oh yeah, self-taught. <laughs> well, you know, I always like, say, yeah. I always say I have a perfect record, no lessons or no classes. <laughs> oh man. Jumping into a band, the band experience, you know, there's no better experience than just starting to be in a band and play music. Yeah, it's absolutely. such a learning experience. Oh yeah. And you learn from, uh, you know, like a number of the bands I was in in my early years, my, my, uh, the other band members were, you know, music majors in college. And of course you, you know, you learn you learn from them. You, you, you know, we share all our music and, and, um, you learn by the, you know, from the other players and the bands uh, that you play with. And, and I did a lot of, you know, self-taught kind of book reading and learning about, you know, scales and orchestration and this, this and that, you know. But that's cool because that that's like the self-education of like seeking the thing you want to do, but constantly looking to better yourself, the people you're around and just absorbing as much as you can. Right. That exactly. to me is, ah, oh, that is so cool. I, I, there are, there, you know, there were off, often moments where you would discover, discover uh, musical concepts on your own and they would make a, a much 
heavier impression on you than if you were learning it from a book. You know, like when I first discovered the idea of modes and diatonic modes and things, I, it was like a, you know, the aha moment. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And all of a sudden you have all this great knowledge to explore. You know, had I learned that from a book, I don't think it would have had the same impact. You know, I would have to say, you know, you said, you know, early on as you were starting guitar, you were learning all these albums. I would imagine the best education is when you're covering all these songs for, you know, Weird Al, where it's like, here's here's the new batch of songs that we're going to be doing parodies of. This is what it is. And you're absorbing all these different techniques and new styles. And it's almost like you're getting an education of how music evolved over the past 30 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And and even before Weird Al, you know, I had played in bands where we did a lot of covers. Um, and, you know, you're trying to learn them as close to the original as possible. So that was sort of a, you know, a good basis for my career with Al. You know, once I started playing with Al... I had experience picking parts off of records and, and learning and, you know, dialing in the tones and stuff. And I'd already done quite a bit of that. So that was a good, good basis. Now, when you were playing in band, so this was, um, I'm going to see if I get this right. So you were based in Florida at the time. Yes, I was. As a kid yeah. growing up. And, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, was it, you know, before meing out, what, what was the reason for eventually where you like, I need to go to Los Angeles. I need to go to LA because that's where music happens. Well, exactly. You know, I had, um, in Florida, I had, you know, the best gig I could possibly get. It was a house, house band situation. I'd been there for almost two years and it was the, you know, a big club and, you know, the really good money. And, and I was also partners with some friends in a recording studio. And, and I realized this at that point, it was like, well, I don't know that I can go any farther here, you know, doing this was, of course, pre-internet. So it wasn't, uh, you know, as easy for people to just live anywhere. So I, I figured, well, I need to go to a, um, you know, to either L.A. or New York. And, and L.A. just appealed to me because the weather was more, you know, compatible and sunny and warm as opposed to, you know, New York weather. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So. What was that first, that period, um, you know, making that transition, jumping into L.A.? Well, it was interesting because I had um, the, uh, Steve Jay, who plays bass with Weird Al, we, we were friends in Florida. So he had actually moved to L.A. Oh. B- before uh, me. He'd actually gone out originally to audition for Frank Zappa. The, the club that we both played in that I was mentioning, the house cl- uh, club, a lot of mm-hmm. famous rock stars would come in all the time because it was a big happening place. And uh, Frank Zappa came in a couple of times, and and I remember one time he came in and he said, you know, this band is really, really good. I don't think I've ever heard a cover band this good, and, you know, give me your phone numbers, you know. So we gave Frank our phone numbers, and um, he eventually called Steve, and Steve went out to L.A. to audition, ended up staying. And um, I remember he called me one day and said, hey, you know, I met these guys in, in L.A., and they, you know, they need a guitar player, and uh, it's a really good band, and you know, if you're thinking about coming to LA, you know, he, you know, so he hooked me up with these, this band in LA. And so I, by the, I, I got to LA and the next day I was rehearsing with the band. And I think three days later I was playing a gig. So it was a pretty easy transition. <laughs> wow. I mean, even just the story of just like Frank Zappa rolls through, sees you guys <laughs> and was like, Hey, give me your numbers. That is, <laughs> that is so cool. So, and even just that, cause you hear stories of like, Oh, I went to LA and it was months before I had, gig. but there you are. And it's just like, you move there with that, that specific reason. And then a couple of days later, you're playing. It was gig. very lucky. Yeah. I was very lucky. Cause a lot of people, you know, even incredible musicians, um, 
you know, come to LA and it's, it takes them forever. And sometimes they just can't get a, a foothold and they just go back home, you know? So I was very lucky. Yeah. Now in that time as you're playing, how do you run across what is your long-term gig? How do you, how did you hear or meet a Val? Steve, the bass player had, um, I think he had gotten a call through some kind of referral service to, um, he got the chance to play bass on Al's very first record uh, that came out on Scotty Brothers, first album. It was just called Weird mm -hmm. Al Yankovic, I think. Um, it had uh, some of the early hits like Rocky Road on there. Um, so I think you know, Steve had, had played bass on that, and he, had, he called me one day and said, hey, you know, um, I'm working with this guy, Weird Al, and um, he has some shows and he's looking for a guitar player and he's going to audition some guitar players. So, you know, why don't you come down and audition? So I did, you know, and I went and uh, learned some of Al's tunes and um, met him. And uh, and he called me one day and goes, hey, well, you got the gig. <laughs> and, <laughs> and at the time it was like, OK, you know, I was actually playing in three or four other bands, you know, just hustling. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, you know, he's got some gigs and. Uh, but, you know, as I started learning his songs, you know, I realized, gee, these are really, you know, at first it was like some guy with an accordion. Um, okay, sure. He's got some gigs. Uh, great. Yeah. You know? But uh, but as I started learning his songs, I realized, geez, these are really well crafted. You know, they're, they are well put together and the, the lyrics are really solid. And, um, you know, so I, I immediately had a lot of respect, you know, for Al. That is, and, and that's cool because I think that's another thing people don't realize. I remember... I think I watched a YouTube video of all of you guys working in the studio, just like the time spent in crafting the songs and the production and the intensity and just the thought that's given to each one. Yeah. Well, Al is very thorough. He doesn't let anything, you know, he doesn't put anything out that he hasn't put a lot of time into and he'll, you know, he'll keep working a lyric until it's really right. You know, that is okay. So you, you get, you land the gig at what point, you know, you have respect and you're like, this is great. At what point did you realize like, Oh wow, this is something a little bit more. This is the, well, then just kind of like, a, it's developing. Right. Well, you know, um, we went out and did a, a couple little tiny tours, you know, maybe, a dozen dates or something so shortly after that. Um, and we were just playing little clubs and, and, you know, there were definitely an, an audience and everything. And, and, but, you know, when we did the next record that had, uh, eat it on it, um, mm -hmm. that was right at the beginning of MTV, of course. And that whole record just blew up. That was called the in 3d record. And at that point, all of a sudden we were, going on tour we had tour buses and we were getting limo rides and you know there was a definite <laughs> jump in the uh, quality of the of the of the gigs uh, at that point you know and, and and that was a real turning point it was like wow this is actually a real serious thing you know oh now i i'm i'm curious like what's your perspective when you go in to record you know specifically as a guitarist what are things you do to prep and what are your thoughts as you're going through that process of recording? What, you know, for you, what do you think about? Well, you know, if you're talking about the Weird Al records, um, <clears throat> you know, originally, of course, you know, the, a lot of the parodies had guitar parts. And, you know, my prep would be to study at home, of course, learn the parts and also try and, you know, figure out the tones, try to approximate mm -hmm. the tones on, on all those parts. Some songs 
would have one guitar parts, uh, one guitar part, especially back in the day. But some songs would have five, six. You know, I think there was one tune. I think it had twelve guitar parts. <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, wait! The bass player only has to do one part, and I have to do twelve parts." <laughs> so there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of homework basically. Uh, you know, just to um, prepare for the session. Yeah. Then, then once we had our parts down, I'd have them. I'd do some notation oftentimes because there'd be so many, if there are multiple parts, I'd have to write them out because I was, I couldn't, you know, remember them all or just as a reminder, I'd write them out. And then I, um, you know, we'd go into the session and we'd, I'd, we'd do the basic track with whatever the most basic guitar part was. And then I would just start doing the overdubs. (laughs) Wow. Now let, now that's weird out, but what about for you, for other things that you've played on and just your approach as a guitarist? Cause you also, you got a Grammy nomination yeah, um, in 2018. My, uh, right. Well, I've, I've, I've been doing this, uh, Hawaiian slack key guitar projects almost as long as I've been playing with Al. I, I started, well, I think I, well, actually I put my first record out in 1999. Um, I've yeah. got, I have my most recent record that just came out a few, a couple weeks ago is, um, my 10th record. But, um, for that, you know, that's, that's an acoustic style. And I've had got many, many years of experience playing that. And, um, I'm always trying to refine it. I mean, I do all my own recording here at my studio. So I also try to refine my recording techniques and, you know, make each record better than the, the last, as far as, you know, uh, it's a lot of original material and, you know, and some mm. covers on some of the records, uh, traditional songs, things like that. So as far as preparation on that, it's really just about practicing and getting the, getting the tune uh, really, really solid and then um, setting up the mics and, and go for it, you know, and hopefully, hopefully a plane doesn't pass by while you're recording. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned too when you were in Florida that you were you're part of a recording studio. Has like almost like guitar and recording just gone in hand in hand for you? Yeah, you know it's funny because I think I started playing with tape recorders before I actually played with guitar, played guitar. Uh, I think really? um, I yeah I remember my older brother had a reel to reel tape recorder, you know the old style thing, and I started playing with that you know when I was maybe ten and I and I would make you know crazy sound effects and. You know, I remember once I, I made this tape in a real deep voice. I was like, warning, you have entered a restricted area. And I, you know, I had that on tape and I would, I backed the tape up and I had a string on my doorknob. So that if, you know, somebody opened my bedroom door, they would click on the tape recorder. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember playing with tape recorders before, you know. And so every time, yeah. you know, I've pretty much always had some kind of recording setup, you know, in the early days I, at a certain point, I had a you know a four track tape machine, and then I had an eight track, and then I had a sixteen track, and of course now it's all digital and everything. Now that's in- now how do you how do you feel about that shift? Um, you know you know as recording has progressed, there's like oh, here's a plug in for a guitar. Here is like you know here's um, you know this this is an amp modeler. You don't need amps. Like what's what do you find the route that you choose to that you love the most when recording? Well, yeah, well, for electric guitar, um, I do use a lot of amp modeling because it's it's recallable um, and it's it just works in the situation. Now, a lot of times on on recent Weird Al records, for example, I will um, record my parts here at home. 
you know, we'll, we'll do a lot of yeah. stuff remotely because, you know, I have the basic track or, or I have the, the basic uh, tempo or whatever, and I'll record my parts here. And a lot of times I will use um, either amp modelers that are in the software. The, the beauty of those, of course, is that, you know, you can keep tweaking the sound after you've recorded the part. You can go back and keep adjusting <laughs> the sound. But I also yeah. use uh, the machines that I use on stage are um, actually uh, fractal axe effects. And they're um, the first amp modelers that I've ever thought would be good enough to use live. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I'll, I'll often use those on my uh, recordings as well, you know, the, the, the amp models. Now, I still do have some great amps, you know, and um, sometimes, especially if I'm doing anything that's real vintage I'll, you know, I'll usually mic up an amp. But, but the amp modelers are getting pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's, now, that's interesting. If you were doing a show, let's say uh, a, a Weird Al show, how, you know, from a guitar standpoint, like how many sounds do you feel like you're just going through? Because I feel like there's, you know, there's definite shifts as you're going through from song to song. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on some tours more than others, um, the the tour before the last one was called the uh, Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Ill-Advised Vanity <laughs> Tour. And on that tour, we were doing all Al's originals. And we would do a different set every night. So we started off learning... 60 songs now you have to have Mm -hmm. a pretty wide sonic palette for that many songs um you know so uh i would i would have a basic sort of setup on my axe effects uh, pedal that basically covers a lot of basic things and then as as i would be learning songs like okay i need this i need this variation i would program that in so um and then on that tour we also we also played a straight cover as part of the encore every night a different one and there were 77 shows so i remember learning you know we learned 60 songs for the basic core so we could have different you know move the songs around every night and then we have learned another 77 songs (laughs) so 137 songs uh you know that you you're having to you know make sure you have a pretty big wide variety of sounds (laughs) you do and especially if it's just kind of like you know nightly if they kind of vary and they change that is that is so many yeah a lot of times a lot of times i during the you know rehearsals for the covers i would be tweaking sounds for that song you know okay i'm gonna you know tweak this out to where it's as close as I can get to whatever it is, you know, Billy Idol song or a rockabilly song or whatever. I would be tweaking out the sounds and I would save it and and uh, wow. use it that night. Now, especially with that, when you're doing all originals, I'm now, especially that you're saying being self-taught, what is your process when you sit down and you're like, oh, this song needs a solo? This needs, like, it, it, you know, this this section of the song is bridged out to have, like, some sort of guitar thing. What is your process? Like, how do you find inspiration in creating riffs or hooks? Well, with Al's originals, you know, he has them pretty mapped out. So he knows where the solo is going to be. But mm-hmm. we sort of, for the guitar, I sort of kind of, you know, he, he has a vibe that he wants. And he might have a few reference recordings. Because oftentimes Al's originals, for the most part, are what they, he calls style parodies or sort of pastiches, meaning that they're in the style of another band, you know, like Dare to be Stupid was obviously a Devo pastiche. So, you know, mm-hmm. he would give us, you know, recordings of uh, various recordings of that band. And then I would try and come up with my guitar parts based 
you know, on the style of that band and sound and everything. So, you know, so I would, a lot of the parts were parts that I came up with on my own, unless Al had a specific line that he wanted me to play. And then solos were just like, just, you know, go for it, you know, uh, (laughs) (laughs) just jump in there and, you know, but sometimes I would work up a solo uh, on a few tunes. I remember I would, you know, work a solo up ahead of time. But a lot of times they were just like, let's see what happens. Hit record and go, you know. <laughs> Are there any ones that you remember that it was kind of like the hit record and go? And then by the end, you were like, oh, damn, I like that. <laughs> it's just like, where did that come from? Yeah, you know, there were always a lot of them. I mean, a lot of times, in the especially in the old days, because in the old days, we would be in the studio for everything. You know, nowadays, we often will do parts remotely. But in the old days, you know, first take i'd blast something out and i was like wow that's great i said well no no, i can do it better he said you sure i mean that's good enough for me if you want to keep it you know (laughs) i said no no save that one i'll do another one you know you know and uh i would keep sort of refining it you know and uh but there were there were a a lot of them that that were like that i i know i one of my favorite ones was um al did this uh pastiche of frank zappa it was called genius in france it was like about a 10 minute long piece you know really long and yeah, another um, one <laughs> yeah and um oh. he had dweezil zappa play the opening riff because it was um sort of supposed to sound a lot like a, another frank zappa song so dweezil played the opening riff and then i but there were two or three uh solo bits in there that and it was that kind of thing i just had nothing planned i was just just hit record let's do something and and some of them came out really cool because i was sort of trying to emulate the you know zappa technique and stuff you know um but i mean the versatility that you have to have because he may give you some references but for you and your creative mind then to adapt it to that style that genre and to make it feel authentic that says something about your playing because not everyone can easily adapt to that quickly. Like, you know, sometimes people are kind of locked in their genre. You kind of have to be very fluid, I feel. Yes, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that, that's, you know, if, if you're a session, I, I don't do a lot of, you know, I'm not sort of in the session guitarist world here, although a lot of my friends are in that world, a lot of famous LA session players. And that's exactly what you have to do. You have to be super fluid. You have to come in there if it's a jazz gig you got to sound authentic if it's a you come in and it's going to be a country thing it's like you know you got to bring the right guitars and the right amps and and the right attitude and uh, you know it's it is it's about being very very fluid and it's a, you know being a chameleon so um oh but i mean those three things that you said like you know right you know yeah right guitar right amp but the right attitude and just i guess being open because sometimes people are just like no it's like (laughs) no and this idea of just being like well you know i'll see what happens because you can learn something from that and i'm sure are there any songs where you were doing a parody of that you were like yeah but then as you got into it you were like you know what my mind's kind of changed a little bit yeah um Gee, I, you know, I think it happens to an extent on, on all of them. You know, I mean, you're, uh, you know, Al, when he does parodies or originals, you know, he usually has a certain amount of respect for that artist, you know, um, even though he may be sort of doing a, making fun of them in a way, but, you know, especially on his originals, he, he, um, he has a lot of respect for, for those artists. And, and by the same token, usually the stuff that he really likes is, is stuff that I like too, you know? So it helps that, you know, if it was something that was just really awful, um, 
you know, it would be a little harder, <laughs> harder to get into it. <laughs> but there have been moments where I'm trying to think of where uh, a couple, at least one time there was something where Al wanted me to sound as bad as possible. And, you know, like, I, you know, yeah. like somebody who can't play at all, you know, and, and he'd be going, no, no, it needs to be way worse. You know, it's got to be way worse. Can you make it really wor- bad? You know, <laughs> and then I finally hit on it. And it was like, oh, I'm going to flip the guitar around and play left-handed because I can't play left-handed and it'll sound like somebody who can't play because it's true. <laughs> and that worked out oh. perfectly. <laughs> but even that, the science of like, how do I make myself sound bad requires thought. And it's just it like, that's so cool. <laughs> well, you um, know, oftentimes during Al shows over the years, if he would just, if he would call out guitar solo, you had to do something really stupid. It couldn't be good, you know, and, had, and you know, it, that was part of the gig, you know, you know, like I think for a while I would play like Mary had a little lamb, but I'd get the last note wrong every time and I'd keep trying to get it right, you know. And I think one time I, I he would say guitar solo and I'd get ready to rock and like, okay, I'm going to rock. And then I start tuning and it's like, oh, the guitar just keeps getting more and more out of tune, more and more, just horrible. And that's it, you know, no solo, just, bad tuning <laughs> but it seems like that which is funny it's 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 almost like the things that musicians try not to do on stage it's <laughs> right. like the, the idea like what you're describing in the studio like all this work and the seriousness that you guys put into like the heart and into the craft but also to not taking yourselves so seriously where some people it's the reverse it's like you know <laughs> the the deep rooting artist but it's just like to me that's also pushing the ego aside and being like but we're enjoying what we're doing and we can poke fun at ourselves at the same time. Exactly. Well, that's, that's one thing I say about playing with Al is it, it, it helps you sort of keep that perspective and not take yourself too seriously, you know, because Al pokes fun at everybody, no matter how serious they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now to me, I'm, I'm super interested too in knowing, you know, what are some other things, you know, you've done a lot music, you've done fantastic things musically. Are there things on your bucket list still guitar wise that you would love to do more of? Well, um, I, I used to do a lot of music for TV and film as a composer, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and I used to do a lot of these things with, and a lot of it was animation. I did a few features and some, you know, Disney channel shows and commercials. And, um, I did a lot of animation, um, which wasn't oh, my favorite. Cool. It wasn't really my yeah. favorite thing to do, but it was because um, it's very detailed. You know, the music changes mm-hmm. so fast. It, it wasn't my favorite thing to do, but that was just the connections that I had at the time. And um, a lot of it was orchestral, but it was not, you know, they didn't have the budget to actually have a real orchestra. So I was using, you know, synthetic orchestras here in my studio samples and all that stuff. But um, I would like to maybe at some point... Uh, do a little guitar, maybe even a slack key guitar concerto of some kind or some kind of orchestral piece, you know, something on a larger scale. And that's something I've sort of have in the back of my mind. I haven't really written anything for it, but it's it's sort of sitting there, you know. <laughs> now, that that's interesting, too, getting into the, the composing side. Um, did you find like, so it was just through people that you knew that you kind of started to kind of like, oh, you know, we need the scoring for this particular show. What's that like, or that your perspective of doing that? And you know, what were some of the shows that you did, or and or commercials? Well, um, there was a, a certain point that I, I 
I've always written instrumental music, and, and there was a point um, many years ago when I thought, I'd really like to you know, write music for film. Because when I'd watch movies, I'd really, and TV shows for that matter, I would really pay attention to the score. And sometimes I'd play along with it with my guitar, you know, just sort of like an ear training thing. But um, yeah. I'd always wanted to, um, to do that. And at one point, um, this is way back in probably like early 90s, I um, had a chance to do a demo for this weird project. 20th Century Fox had a lot of this, some, a lot of their old catalog. Uh, the China wanted to bring some of these old Fox films from the 40s and 50s to China. And they were, of course, going to have to redub them into Chinese. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, somebody I knew who was in the post-production business said, look, they, 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 they got this contract with China for 13 films and they're going to dub them into Chinese, but but if but any of the music behind the um, dialogue, they don't have for the most part don't have the original tapes of just the music anymore. They're lost or destroyed or you know damaged. So yeah. you know the 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 music and the sound effects under the dialogue all needs to be replaced. And so they said, can you do a demo because they're going to audition several composers to um to to uh, for the job. And so what I did was I. For my demo, I forget which movie it was, but I took the cue, and it was probably like a two-minute cue, and I just copied it note for note <laughs> by ear, you know, starting yeah. with the main melodies and fill it all in, and, and it was all played by hand, you know, no, no sequencing or anything. It was all played by hand um, using different samples, and I refined that, and, and when they played it for the producers, they loved it because the other guys just kind of that were auditioning just kind of um, did their own thing, you know, and I, I actually copied the original score and I got the job. And so I had like a year and a half of work of studying some of the greatest composers of all time, film composers, you know, Alfred Newman. And I mean, everybody, Bernard Herrmann and, you know, famous films like journey to the center of the earth and the sun also rises and, you know, Shirley temple dimples. And I mean, there was a, 13 films. I can't remember the names of all of them, but some big Fox films. So I, I got my musical film music education from doing that over a period of about a year and a half and, and got paid for it too. <laughs> that, that is like the best self-education right there where it's just like, I, you know, everything that you've, you know, that you've shared so far, it's just so cool to hear that it's just like, oh, this thing opened up and then but I feel like you're a person that dives, like you dove fully into that to immerse yourself, which separated you from the other composers. You studied what was happening. It's like, so what worked for this composition for this film? Right. You were just like, oh, let me just massage it a little bit and add some things here, but not, you know, you know, go wildly off track where the other ones, you know, may have just been like, I'm going to put my spin on it. Yeah. It's just yeah. Like, no, no I've, it worked because when they would crossfade from the original score, to the dialogue with mine underneath it, it was seamless. They were like, nobody would notice anything. It just felt totally natural. Cause I didn't, you know, change anything. I did it faithfully note for note. Um, you know, starting with the main melodies and filling in the percussion and the basses and the different pads and stuff, but it, it worked really well. And, and it was, like I said, it was a fantastic education cause you're studying orchestration, you know? And then I went on to, to do some other shows, some, you know, some features that were not well known, but that played a lot on cable, you know, these, some of them were kind of like sort of martial arts type, you know, things. And 
um, yeah. some Disney Channel shows. I did, you know, then I got into this connection with somebody where I started doing a lot of animation. Before that, I had done a lot of some TV commercials for Honda and Nike and a bunch of things, uh, um, which was a challenge in itself too, because it's you know thirty seconds of music, you know. <laughs> but uh, but but I started getting into animation uh, through another composer friend of mine, and um, I did tons of shows. I mean, the, one of the early ones I did was the um, Iron Man Marvel Iron Man, the Saturday morning Iron Man. You know, not the feature, really? but uh, okay. I did that that whole series, and and the very last one I ever worked on, which was number not that long ago, but um, was. Um, the reboot of My Little Pony. <laughs> and, oh um, man! And I did I did a lot of work on on the first first year of that. But I got I got I was busy with my own thing and touring with Al, and I just I just didn't have the time to put into it. But luckily, since I was on the first year, um, you know, with animation, they'll they'll basically take the first year music and they will. Mm-hmm make a music library of it and the music editor will keep cutting it in for all the subsequent years, you know? So luckily I was on that first year and I was able to, you know, they would keep using my music over and over again. Ah, <laughs> uh, I, this is, this is that, that is something uh, you've so many tidbits here. Like the idea of you know Frank Zappa just being like, Hey, give me your phone number. <laughs> and you just delving into too, like, you know, your work was weird out great, but like your solo work, uh, you know, the Grammy nomination, this idea of uh, music composition, which I didn't even know, mm. I, I think is super fascinating because I think too, like when it comes to like composition work and sync licensing, that's that's an area some musicians that are just like, well, what is that? And, you know, for me, I, I what you were saying, you know, I remember just me holding my guitar, listening commercials and more listening to the music and being like, what's the similarities here between this commercial and the last commercial? Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh my goodness, it's the same thing. And you start to see those patterns. And then once you kind of have that entryway into that world, it's not so mysterious. It's just kind of like, it, it, I found it fun to just like delve in and start building. Things. Absolutely. Are yeah. A- yeah. I, especially in, in the commercial world. Cause like I said, I did some commercials for a while and, and, um, and you can really see what's what's trending at the time. Like I know recently, like a lot of ukulele on the TV commercials, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the whole sync licensing thing is something I I have to kind of move ahead. I mean, I, I I get I don't really have you know representation in that. So I but but I get emails you know every so often. Hey, we'd like to license this, you know, and they just deal with me directly and. You know, I haven't had any huge ones, but you know, it's it's good bread and butter, and it's what we call passive income. You don't have to really do anything. I, I have such a huge catalog of original, you know, on my Slack key catalog, uh, guitar catalog. I've you know ten CDs worth, and, and I also have quite a lot of other music that you know that I own outright too. You know, so sometimes something pops up, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, they want to license this, and you know. You know, it's like great <laughs> you're like go ahead absolutely totally fine oh that is so um no that is wonderful are you also a person that could just get lost in the studio i feel like like if you have a good cup of coffee and you're just in your studio it's like cool i'm good yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> and, and i'm a you know a bit of a tech nut and i have a you know i'm really into the gear and and you know microphones and vintage preamps and you know, just uh, I have a bit of an addiction to the gear. So, uh, and, and not just the hardware, but the software. I'm, you know, I buy, you know, software, music, or instrument libraries all the time, and I'm always playing around with this and that. <laughs> 
Because it's just, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. It's it like is. once you can, it's like saying, oh, I've got one guitar. That's a lot. It's just yeah. like, it's not going to just be one. Um, no, this was, this is fascinating. And Jim, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and all the stories. I, this is something I've been excited for literally since like you just emailed so nicely back and like, yeah, sure. I'm down to do it. I was like, no shit. He's down to do it. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'm pumped. So thank you so much for doing it. I'd love to have you back and just talk more guitar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime you like, Mike, it'd be, be my pleasure. In my early days of teaching, when I had to teach Beat It to someone, I would always pull up Eat It. I was, I knew, I feel like even now, I still know the words, the majority of very popular songs, but I know the Weird Al versions, and I'm absolutely okay with that. But you know what I'm not okay with? Songwriters that pretend like they're not guitarists. They carry these guitars, they have them in rights, but they just say, I'm a songwriter. But meanwhile, they need to totally up their guitar skills. Because if you're using your guitar to convey your songs, well, guess what? You need to understand dynamics. And the problem is most songwriting guitarists don't. That's why I created a free series called Audience Engaging Dynamics. This is something that songwriting guitarists have to do. This is crucial. So just head to songwritingforguitar.com, jump in, and watch your songwriting improve. That's all for this week. If you love this podcast and you've been enjoying every single episode, be sure to give us a review at Apple Podcasts. It's always greatly appreciated. This episode was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Until next time.